The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome to a very special episode. I cannot believe I'm going to say this, but it's our 100th episode. Can you believe it? 100th episode. And we've got a very special guest. Our guest is the one and only Becky Allison, who is the other host of The Hearing. I've picked you up now, Becky. I know, it's going to be downhill from here on out, folks. Not at all. And, you know, the funny thing is, when we were putting our heads together thinking, right, what should we do for the 100th episode? You had a bit of imposter syndrome, because when we said, well, Becky, why don't we interview you? Because I was interviewed ages ago, even before I started doing this um, job as one of the the hosts. And, And you haven't been interviewed. And when I looked into your background and what motivates you and what you're passionate about and what you do now, I thought you'd be absolutely ideal for this episode. Oh, you're so kind. I I did absolutely, I did absolutely have some imposter syndrome. I was just thinking to myself, well, it's awfully kind of you to ask me, um, but I don't think my life has been that interesting. Uh, I haven't, you know, (laughs) done lots of dramatic cases and things like that. Uh, And then you're, well, people will hear in the interview that I, I surprised myself. Well, I surprised myself with what I've done. Fantastic. Well, without further ado, let's get into the interview. The Hearing. As I ask most of our guests on, on the podcast, what was your journey into law? Why law? Well, this is going to make me sound like an incredible swat. But I think I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was about 14, and then I relentlessly pursued it. But if you ask me now, what was the thing that made you want to be a lawyer? I honestly, I'm not sure that I could tell you. It's been such a long time. But what I do remember is a very clarity of purpose when I was 14, saying, no, I'm going to be a lawyer. Wow. You know, I, actually, I think I knew at that point, but well, it, my dad was a lawyer, so that was a big influence on me. Did you have any role models or where did this idea come from? What what had you seen or heard that made you want to become a lawyer? Gosh, well, it certainly wasn't my family. My family are fabulous, but they're all teachers, mm. all of them. My sister, my parents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. Teaching is the family profession and they're all wonderful at it. Um, but I knew from a very early age that that was absolutely not going to be where my gifts lay. So um, I was looking for other things to do. And it was almost certainly going to be having watched some TV programme. Probably. No, no, it predates Ali McBeal. I'm older than that. I think it might have been maybe Murder One. Do people remember Murder One? I'm the same age as you and I don't remember Murder One. Who's in Murder Uh, One? I can't even remember now. Well. (laughs) But it was an American law firm that uh, defended murder trials. Ah, okay. But you didn't want to get into criminal law or you just had this idea that I want to be a lawyer. You didn't think past, you know, what what area of law you wanted to specialize in it wasn't that advanced was it um so i think and i'm gonna i'm gonna have to be really honest here and uh, apologies to the listeners i think that initially i did want to be a criminal lawyer okay. i think that the idea of um pursuing justice looking after people in the system was really important to me. And the, and the the idea that has always been really, really um, critical to me in my career has been this compact that we have with the state where police and others have extra powers that ordinary citizens don't. 
Mm. So that they can do their duties. You know, I, I, Becky, do not have the ability to throw you, Yasmin, in jail if I feel like it um, or restrain you or anything like that. But we give these extra powers to the state and to state actors like the police. And I think from a very young age, it always struck me that if you give these people extra powers to do their jobs, then there has to be extra responsibility that goes with that. And it is absolutely right and proper that um, we have lawyers in the system, excellently trained lawyers whose job it is to hold the state and to hold police to account and to make sure things are all being done properly. Mm. And those those concepts are really important to me, although I doubt I was articulating them like like that when I was 14. Um, But I think I felt them very keenly when I was 14. So that sort of set me onto a train of thinking I would like to do criminal law. And as I went further into the law, and as I did um, the, the criminal module on the LPC, which I thoroughly enjoyed and all of that, it became very quickly, glaringly apparent to me that if I did that as a profession, then I would never be able to put it down at night. I would always be keeping myself up thinking, if I just worked an extra hour, I could really save this person yeah. if you know and then I realized quite quickly in the early days of my career that whilst I loved being a lawyer if I went into something like human rights or criminal law then I would I would never let myself rest and it probably wouldn't be very good for me in the long term. Well, you thought that back then that that early? Uh, yes, I think it was because uh, I was so passionate about justice. And mm. I was, you know, at, at the age that I was thinking of being a lawyer at 14, I was a member of CND. Uh, I was doing all sorts of other political work. Um, even at 14, I know I told you it makes me sound like a total sport. Um, and and I, I remember thinking, if I did this for my job, I would never let myself rest. And, wow. I, and this would not be a good thing. Well, it sounds quite mature at that age to have that forward thinking already about work-life balance I mean these are things we're talking about more now aren't we about mental health I don't think I was thinking that at 14 but I think by the time I was sort of heading into my 1920s and that early stages of that kind of legal education that's when it kind of became apparent to me that I felt so deeply affected by some of the things that I worked on and I also remember and, and this absolutely affected me very deeply that I at the age of 14, I arranged for myself to go and do some um, work experience at a local law firm doing family law. And why on earth um, this was acceptable? But it was, and it was a good thing, it was acceptable. But I was um, put in family law with um, a fantastic senior solicitor uh, and I worked with her on cases for a week and I read into all of her cases and I sat in on some of her interviews and I was dealing with, I was reading into at the age of 14, 15, the most intense cases of child neglect mm. um, because she represented families whose children had been taken away by social services. And it very quickly showed me that anything that was going to be that deeply affecting to me, um, I was going to struggle with. And I remember really keenly, actually, at the age of 14, the nuance of this situation kind of really coming. So I was reading these cases about um, childhood neglect um, and children who'd been taken away. And then I remember sitting in the room with a father who was desperately trying to get his children back. Yeah. And he was a, a deeply compassionate man. Um, he also had very, very severe schizophrenia mm. and he loved his children and was so closely bonded with them, but he wasn't really even capable of looking after himself. And watching the solicitor talking to him so compassionately and trying to explain to him that 
he was in all likelihood probably not going to be able to get his children back because he wouldn't be able to look after them properly, because he couldn't really look after himself properly. And mm. seeing in that moment how this wasn't a clear-cut case, how he was intensely bonded with them, he loved them so incredibly. And thinking at that moment, um, and as a really young adult, not, not even an adult at the age of 14 and 15, thinking this is this is the tough work that lawyers do, yeah. actually. This is the really tough work that lawyers do. It's not standing in front of a judge and arguing a case. It's sitting in front of your client and saying, I'm so sorry, I don't think we can get your children back. Yeah. And it not being a cut or dried case, this man was not abusive to his children. Yeah. He He's loved unwell. them dearly. He was, he was just unwell. Yeah. He was yeah. unwell and he was never realistically going to be well enough to take care of two small children yeah. and and yet that was deeply affecting yeah I mean I, I can feel it now even you talking about it I don't even have to see him but yeah I mean lawyers are dealing with real life situations and has consequences what we say to people and um yeah, it's heartbreaking, that story, really. It was. It was absolutely heartbreaking. And I feel very honoured now, looking back on it, that at such a young age, I was allowed to be in that room. Mm. And I was allowed to sit and observe that conversation and how it really informed how I wanted to be a lawyer for the rest of my career, no matter what sort of law I went into, being so aware that lawyers often sit at the these critical moments in people's lives of actual deep pain. Yeah, yeah. And that stuck with you for for years, that, that, mm. that moment. Yeah, unbelievable. But you didn't practice in family law at, at, later on, did you? What, what did you eventually specialise in then? So I, I took a slightly um, meandering path, I suppose, into my specialism, which I'm really grateful for, actually, because I think that young lawyers in some ways are forced to specialise really really early and it, it actually benefits us as lawyers if we can have a broader experience of different facets of law before we get to where we want to be um, and so my actual first proper job in the legal world was as a uh, legal secretary uh, in the probate team at a small high street law firm in Oxford. I had a gap year and I had got my my law degree at that point, but I hadn't done my law school, I don't think. Um, and so I wanted a job in the legal world, um, but I wasn't qualified. So I thought, well, I'll go and be a legal secretary because my typing's not too bad. Um, I can understand and type legal terms um, and I'll be learning and growing. And um, after a while of being a legal secretary, I actually got taken on as a paralegal in the probate team and um, dealt with a lot of legacy matters. And that, again, was very interesting to me, just sort of seeing people's lives written in documents, mm. of course. And so there is that sort of dryness to them. But actually, these are really um, documents talking about very painful, difficult things. And I remember that one of the cases that I worked on um, was a triple murder. You think, you're working in probate, Becky. You know, how do you get onto a triple mm. murder? And what had happened, it was a legacy case um, where a man had killed his wife, killed their daughter, and the next day he had gone round to his mother-in-law's house, his wife's mother, and he had murdered her too. And the probate was so complicated because he was the executor named in all of the wills. Mm. Um, and 
it was so complicated. I say, why is a paralegal doing this? And the reason why a paralegal was doing this was because there was no chargeable money left in it. There was no body who was going to be inheriting this money, who was sitting there waiting for it. And there wasn't really very much money as well. And so I was kind of given it to say, well, you can't really mess this up. It's um, been going on for 12 years. He, um, he left prison. He was discharged from prison before the probate was finally wound up because it was so complicated. Mm. Um, and again, I was just looking at this situation of where the lawyers are intersecting in a very dry way mm. through all of these, um, you know, the grants that you have to get from the court and, and technically the people had ended up dying in test state and we had to look at who had died first and it was very complicated. And then potentially having to track down the people who were due to get the small amount of money left in the estate. But of course, when you're contacting them, what you're saying is, do you remember that aunt that you had who was murdered 12 years ago? Oh, well, you've got some money. And that's a very complicated and difficult yeah. conversation to have because on the one hand, you're saying you've come into a windfall. But in the other situation, you are bringing up a terrible family tragedy. Mm. Um, gosh, my career sounds a lot more exciting than, than, well, and, and a lot more tragic uh, than, than it would belie. Well, um, you said you'd be an interesting guest <laughs> and you're just proving it to yourself by actually talking about some of the cases you've worked on. And yeah, people may think probate is dry initially, but no, it's about people's lives and, and you know, the tragedy you've mentioned that, that can... Um, be unveiled by by looking into this. I think you're right, and I think it's also more than that because I mean, what some of the listeners who are not probate lawyers may not realise, and of course, probate law has probably moved on in incredible ways since I worked on it when I was a a, a young woman. Um, but one of the things that I remember is that one of the clients who died, um, they had no family, and the law firm were the executors. Uh, and I remember one of the lawyers having to go into their house with bin bags to pick up as many pieces of paper as they could and then try to piece together their life to see where the money was and to close down their bank accounts and close down their electricity bill and things like that. And I just remember coming into this lawyer's desk, seeing these bin bags and seeing these piles of paper and thinking, you know, this person has died. Probably they were very lonely. Um, and now you you are trying to put together, piece together their lives to wind up their affairs. And, and seeing all of those pieces of paper laid out on this um, this lawyer's desk, mm. I think that was quite affecting as well. You know, the, what is the remnants of a life? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh. So, Becky, I know that you now work at the Chancery Lane Project. And... Um, for those who haven't heard of, of, of that organisation, could you tell us a, a little bit about what they do? And then the, the second question for you is also, what was your motivation um, for, for joining them? Sure. Um, well, I'm really passionate about the Chancery Lane project. Um, and what we do is that we look at the area of law which most lawyers practice in most of the time. So our aim is to use contracts and contract clauses to try and take out carbon, put in biodiversity and use all of the mechanisms and the levers around the whole contracting process to instead of saying this contract is just here to make profit or to make value. It's also this contract is here to reduce carbon or to create a social value. Um, and I think that the reason that's so powerful is that contracts touch 
every part of our lives, actually. Every time you go into Tesco's and buy yourself a Diet Coke, it's because there's branding contracts in place and there's distribution contracts in place and there are supply chains in place. You know, almost everything you do as a human being now in the Western world um, is facilitated by contracting. So contract covers so much of our lives. And of course, that also means that there is very little part of the average person's life in the Western world which does not emit carbon in some way whether it is going over to a supermarket and buying a drink, or whether it is driving to work, or whether it is throwing a piece of plastic away, a piece of one-use plastic. Well, that plastic was made, you know, in a process which would have emitted carbon. You know, so given that so much of our lives are regulated by contract, even though we can't necessarily see it, and given that so much of our lives produce carbon, contracts are this incredible place to take the carbon out. So it's not waiting for regulation, which is amazing, but it's really slow. And according to the IPCC, we have eight years now to fix climate change. And I want to believe that we can do the legislation and get it sorted in eight years, but I'm not going to wait around to see if it happens. I'm going to do something else instead. And litigation absolutely has an important place in all of this. It's holding people to account, but it's also dealing with the situation after the carbon has been emitted. And what we're trying to do in Chancery Lane Project is get into that middle chunk. Say, if you looked at every contract as an opportunity to take out carbon, what would the world look like? Hmm. Wow. And do you think that you're sort of, um, I'm sure you're an, an environmentalist before joining the Chancery Lane Project, but do you think you've become more of an environmentalist since joining them, just being aware of more of the issues and really getting stuck into this? Yeah, I, I really have. So I, I as you say, I, I was environmental matters were always really important to me. Mm. Um, as you can probably tell from my, my previous answers to your previous questions, you know, the idea of justice yeah. and of doing right by both people and planet has been a core part of who I am and who I've been since I was very young. Um, and I was really lucky that just before I worked for, started working for the Chancery Lane Project, I was actually working at Practical Law. I was a senior editor in the in-house team, uh, which was a fabulous experience. And we um, supported the very first Chancery Lane Project hack, hackathon, where lawyers came together to draft these contract clauses to try and take carbon out the first time it had been done. And it was a deeply... Um, uh, collaborative and affecting experience. I had never been in a room with 140 other lawyers all working really hard together to um, generate contract clauses to take ca- uh, carbon out. Uh, and it was also, and I say it was collaborative, and I mean that in a really deep sense, because I remember I was sitting at the table on corporate governance, because I had some experience in that from my in-house days, uh, and I was sitting next to a lawyer from Herbert Smith who advised oil and gas clients. And on the other side of me was a non-profit lawyer who had an Extinction Rebellion patch Mm. sewed to their rucksack. And I remember thinking, this is a unique moment here for lawyers. This isn't even going beyond um, being in competition with your peers at a law firm. This is about getting people with very, very different 
um, ways of being in the world to sit together and to come up with some good ideas. Mm. That was very powerful. So I was already very keen on the Chancery Lane project from that experience. Um, and then the other thing I think that pushed me into going to work with them is, is and this is going to sound so, um, I don't want to say trite, but so well-worn, and it's my children. I yeah. have two wonderful kids, um, and I worry about the world that we are leaving for them. But more than that, I just had, I, in my mind, I kept replaying this future conversation. I'm thinking, what what would I say if my children sat me down and looked me in the eye in 10 years' time and said, the state this world is in, what did you do about it, Mum? What were you doing to fix this? And I just wanted a better answer than I separated out my recycling. But I think you're right that working for the Chancery Lane project has um, made me even more committed on the environmental work uh, that I do. And I I think, to be honest, that is just a natural um, aspect of the process of spending my day job reading about what's going to happen if it goes wrong, reading about the solutions, looking into this every single day. Yeah, it's amazing because you can combine who you are, your values, what's important to you with with your day job. It's almost the the boundaries are almost blurred, aren't they? Which is a very satisfying place to be because you're reading about this stuff anyway. You're very passionate about it and you're actually making real change. And, you know, I'm sure your children will be immensely proud of you if you have that conversation actually you are making a huge difference well that's very kind of you to say but I do feel like I'm just I'm just a cog in the machine of amazing people who are, are making a difference but I think the do you know what the irony is Yasmin mm. is that I ran away from doing human rights and criminal law and family law because I mm. knew that my innate sense of justice would push me too hard and I've actually ended up in environmental work yeah. Not environmental law exactly, because it's it's contract law, which is my specialism, but environmental work. Um, and so far, I'm managing to hold that line, but we'll see. Yeah, because you're going to take that home. I mean, whatever we do, I think we're, we're going to take some of this home anyway, if you feel so deeply and passionate about it. Um, that's really interesting background. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so we hear a lot about net zero contracts. and. What are they exactly? That might sound like a silly question, but I think you're well qualified to explain what are net zero contracts in layman well, terms. I don't think I've seen one yet, but um, okay. I, I am hopeful. Um, I think the idea, if the idea of net zero is that your carbon emissions are either reduced to nothing or meaningfully offset in a way which means that the sort of the net amount of carbon going into the environment from whatever you're doing is zero. Um, And the reason I say meaningly offset is because I think that offsetting is perceived by some as a silver bullet, but actually the vast majority of offsetting schemes out there are not fit for purpose and are not getting us to net zero. Um, And so that's the first thing. And so a contract is really just, as I said earlier, it's using all of the mechanisms that you would have in a contract to deliver on value, but to deliver on creating that net zero um, calculation. And I think that this is really critical, actually, um, because huge amounts of companies and organisations have set net zero targets. We had COP26 um, just last year where the race to zero 
campaign was really successful and one third of FTSE 100 companies signed up to it. And what I have seen, which has been really interesting, is that we have taken a number of our contract clauses at Chancery Lane Project and we have made them not exactly net zero, but what we have done is said this clause fulfills the Paris Agreement criteria. It fulfills the criteria for the race to zero and it complies with the Oxford principles on offsetting. So these are the clauses which give contractual effect to a race to zero sign up. And what's so interesting is that every time we present these to lawyers, we say people say they're so so impractical, they're so uncommercial. And I think that's just so fascinating because that's that's what we've signed up to. That's the race to zero criteria. If you're looking at a contract clause which fulfills the race to zero criteria and saying that's not commercial, then instead of saying that's not commercial and we can't use it, you need to say that's not commercial. Oh, goodness. How are we going to have to wind this back and think about doing our business in a completely different way so that we can hit the promise that we have just made? Mm-hmm. And I know... Um... For your clients, you've got a toolkit as well, a net zero toolkit. Can, can you talk us through that? What, what does that involve exactly? Sure, I'd love to. I think that, that a lot of lawyers are worried about the climate from a yeah. personal um, uh, angle, but I think also from a professional angle. I think that climate-related risk is now something which is really bleeding into every practice area. It's in M&A deals. It's in um, property transactions. It's in it's in everything, really. It's in the stability of supply chains. Um, and I think there's a lot of lawyers out there who are slowly starting to realise that their practice area now has a climate element to it, whether they like it or not, because it probably has a risk element to it. And But they don't know where to go to get educated about it because it's really hard to find information. When we first put the um, the Net Zero Toolkit together, we realised there is no standard definition for Net Zero. Mm. Uh, and you know, us lawyers, we like standard de- we like a standard we definition, don't we? Yeah. We like to know what's what. <laughs> um, and so I think that prompted us really to say, okay, well, there's a lot of lawyers here who are going to have to deliver the race to zero in their legal drafting for their clients, third of FTSE 100, so what are they going to need to know in order to do that? So we started out just making a 10-minute video saying, okay, let's help you understand what net zero is. And honestly, I think that might be the most valuable thing in the whole toolkit, this short 10-minute video. Mm. Because anytime you have a board meeting or a supply chain kickoff meeting, you can just play this short 10-minute video so that everybody in the room suddenly has a baseline understanding of what net zero is Um, and I know um, about two or three years ago Deloitte put together I think a series of six very very short videos which were sort of primers on climate change generally and again I think those fall into that category of incredibly useful short bite-sized pieces of information to rapidly upskill people Mm. and then the rest of the toolkit really goes into a lot more detail on that so we have a much much more detailed paper for the lawyers that want to get themselves really up to speed um, to direct their own learning according to their own practice area it's got a lot of footnotes a lot of information in but it's all information geared towards helping a lawyer get where they need to be Um, and the other thing I think that we have which is so good is the net zero dashboard So this is a series of seven areas 
that you can judge yourself, your organization, um, your clients against to really see where they are on their net zero journey at a high level. And it covers a lot of angles. Mm. So it covers everything from um, how, how are you recording carbon? Are you recording your scope one, your scope one and two, or your scope one, two and three emissions? Um, what's your um, trajectory and um, pace of decarbonization? So what that means is if you as an organization continue emitting what you're emitting now in terms of greenhouse gases, are you on track to hit 1.5 degrees in 2050, a 1.5 degree rise in 2050 under the Paris Agreement, or are you actually going to be at four or five degrees in 2030? Mm. So you can really almost like benchmark yourself as to how well you're doing. And then it even goes into such detailed um, questions which I think a lot of lawyers probably need to think about, but probably aren't around lobbying. Right. Every business has money that it gives to trade associations and ways mm. that it lobbies. And I think in some ways this has been more acute in the US than it has been here, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes to bec- becomes more of a problem here. The idea that if you are giving money to a trade association and they are lobbying the government to... Um, release controls on climate change in a way which is does not comply with the goals you've set for yourself as an organization as a business then how do you square that circle if you're giving millions and millions of pounds Mm. millions and millions of dollars to people who are trying to get um less regulation in this space that's not going to help you achieve your climate aims Mm. interesting really interesting and um i know that you've also got light green and dark green clauses because uh, I was uh, when I was doing my research on you I heard you talking about this in another podcast actually and um, would you explain to the listeners what what that means exactly absolutely um we don't expect every business to be able to implement a fully paris aligned race to zero compliant set of contract clauses today yeah because it's just not going to happen um, people need to be educated and brought on a journey. Suppliers need to be helped in some cases, particularly if they're SMEs. Um, you may have people that you need to persuade. What we suggest is start with what we call light green clauses. So these are not clauses which are going to take lots of carbon out, but they are going to put up a flag that says this is the journey that we're on. So it's signalling to your stakeholders, your suppliers, this is the journey we're on. So uh, an example of that might be we have a a clause which you can put into heads of terms agreement. Heads of terms agreements are not, they don't create legal obligations, but it's saying at the very outset of a negotiating process, climate's going to be quite important here and you need to pay attention to that. And then once you've done that and you've got everybody in your business comfortable with that, and and feeling good about it, you can say, okay, well, what's the next step up the ladder? What's the next slightly darker green clause that we're going to take on now? And so maybe you put in a clause that, um, or you put in something in your due diligence process that means you have to ask some pretty thorny questions in your due diligence process um, about climate. So again, that might cost a little bit more in terms of time and energy, but it's not the same as a supplier saying, well, you want me to do my work in a totally different way, so I'm going to charge you an extra 7%. Mm. I think that's a really clever way to do light green and dark green because 
it can seem quite overwhelming for a client to, you know, you think, oh, you've got to be absolutely perfect at this, but actually you can dip your toe in, get more comfortable. And as you become more confident with this, then you can, you know, go to dark green. Um, as you say, it's a cliche, but it, it's a journey, isn't it? I think it is a journey. I mean, you're right. It does sound like a cliche, but I think that the way that you don't change a market overnight mm. doing what we're doing. Um, and that's ultimately what we're trying to achieve here is to, we're trying to get these things normal in the same way that you have a, um, a set of boilerplate and nobody give, really bats much of an eyelid looking at your jurisdiction clause in the contract. You might just glance your eye over it to check if, if it says UK, England and Wales or whether it says US or France, but you don't kind of dive into lots of detail about the jurisdiction clause usually. Um, our hope is that one day climate clauses will be like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, brilliant. That's really, because I didn't know some of this stuff and we've been hosts together for, for a while now. And that leads me to the next question, Becky. How long have you actually been a host for the Hearing Podcast? I think it's been nearly two years. Oh. I think it's been about two years About the same now, time which... as me then. I think it is about the same time as you. I think we came on board at the same time, but it feels yeah. amazing. I can't believe we've been doing this for two years. Yeah. Well, it's two. I know it's two years because I was pregnant with my son and he's going to be two next month. So, ah, roughly the same time. So um, what I'd love to ask is, is there a particular guest that you were thinking, oh, I cannot wait to interview? Like who, who was the guest that you were most excited about talking to? Ah, oh, I was so worried you're going to ask me this question, because obviously I'm excited about all of them. Obviously, that's the um, right answer. Yeah, and and the, the second right answer is I'm excited about the guests I haven't yet interviewed, <laughs> the, the future guests that I've got in my mind that I want to speak to. Just one give day. us the answer, um, Becky. Stop trying to suck up to people. So I think that there is the guest that I was most excited about interviewing, and then there's also a, a crop of guests who. Well, um, blew me away when I did interview them. I didn't know very much about them, but when okay. I spoke to them, they were amazing. Yeah. And so the guest I was most excited to speak to was probably Will Moy of Full Fact. Um, oh, and I need to go back to that episode. I don't think I've listened to that one. I must confess. I I knew Will um, in a previous life. I remember meeting him at a party, which sounds so terribly nepotistic. <laughs> but when I met him at the at the party... He was so interesting. And it, it was at, and at the point that I met him at the party, it was just before he was about to give evidence in the Leveson inquiry. Oh. And then he had started this fact-checking organisation, Full Fact, who I think do really critically important work mm. in just debunking misinformation. And, I, and I've spoken in the hearing in other places how important I think proper information is to the functioning of a proper democracy. I don't think you can have true democratic power and true democratic expression of the will of the people Mm. if the people don't know what's going on. Mm. And so I think he does some critical work. And because I knew, because I'd already spoken to him because he was already a friend of mine, I knew how interesting he was. I was so excited to get him on and get lawyers hearing about what he does, because what he does is often adjunctive to what lawyers do. Mm. And he deals a lot with lawyers. And to really just to get lawyers to hear some of his views on misinformation and what can be done about it and what lawyers specifically can do about it. So he was the one I was probably most excited to bring, 
I think, mm. to, to the hearing. And was he your favourite guest? Are you allowed to say that? Um, I think he, I don't have just one. No. I know that, that sounds like a cop out, but I no, really no, don't. No, you're allowed to have a um, few. And so he was one of my favourites um, because he was so interesting and so challenging. And that's another thing. I like it when I my favourite guests are the ones that say things that really push lawyers out of their comfort zones. Mm. Because I believe that lawyers are incredibly powerful, probably more powerful than we realise. Yeah. Um, whether that's because of the way that we're trained to synthesise information and, and look for truth and arguments and construct arguments in a very powerful way, lawyers can often be very persuasive. And that's a huge power that needs to be wielded in a very responsible way. Yeah. Or it's because as lawyers, we understand how some really critical um, mechanisms and systems in the world work that we can really help people navigate those. Um, so really, I like it when I have guests who tell lawyers and explain to lawyers the power that we don't realise we have and then challenge us to use it in a really ethical, meaningful way. I think Will was one of those. I think that um, some of my other favourites were, um, I don't know if people remember, uh, I did an episode a long time ago, nearly two years ago, actually, on um, legal leadership and um, racial justice. Mm. Well, the ethics of legal leadership and racial justice, where I spoke to Carlos Brown and Abimbola uh, Johnson, who are two amazing black thought leaders, mm. um, talking about racial justice and the position of lawyers and legal professionals and where we sit in relation to that. I thought they had some amazing, powerful insights. Um, I really enjoyed my conversation with Mark Van Baal of Follow This, again, from a climate perspective, but looking at how we can use the systems around shareholder meetings, shareholder activism, um, and to use those levers of power to make changes happen and where lawyers can, can get involved in that. And I think most recently, actually speaking to Sarah Dadush and Olivia Wyndham-Stewart on the um, ABA model contract terms around human rights. So um, for anybody who hasn't listened to the episode, go back and listen to it. Um, <laughs> yes, but if you do. haven't, <laughs> um, what they do is very similar to what the Chancery Lane Project does, but they do it with human rights instead of climate change. So they are creating contract clauses um, to um, bring human rights into contracts in the way that we want to bring climate considerations in. And it was just that conversation and speaking to Olivia in particular when she said, I can look at a contract and I can tell you if there will be human rights abuses as a result of it. And then as a lawyer, having my own eyes opened when she said, it's the combination of, yes, there'll be a clause that says you won't breach human rights. And yes, there'll be a clause that says if you do, you have to pay us a penalty. But then the commercial considerations, the um the financial terms you've negotiated, the delivery terms you've negotiated, all of those things are so strict that the contract cannot possibly be delivered without the breaching of human rights. So almost it doesn't matter that you've put a clause in there saying don't do it yeah. because you have screwed them down so hard on the commercial terms that it is not possible to deliver the contract without doing it. And that was so powerful to me as a former commercial contract lawyer sitting there smugly thinking, hey, I've negotiated a really great deal for my client. Look at this. And then having that kind of almost feeling like cold water thrown in my face and rightly so that, that all of my values around 
human rights and ethics and climate justice and racial justice, all of those things, I could be unwittingly undermining them by relentlessly pursuing not just a good deal, not just a deal which benefits my client, but a, a deal which benefits my client to the extreme detriment of other people. And that really got me deeply thinking around how we look at profit now in this country um, and capitalism and profit. And what I mean by that is now every time I see somebody, um, see a corporation or see a company saying they've posted record profits or they've posted massive shareholder dividends, but I know they are paying their staff less than minimum, uh, minimum wage, less than living wage, or I know they are emitting a lot of carbon. Now my brain is thinking, okay, well, hang on a minute. If you took, if you shaved two percentage points off those dividends or off those amazing profits that you've just posted, you could have paid a living wage. Mm. And and the people who own your company and the shareholders, you'd still have made loads of money. Mm. Mm. And maybe that's a better, more balanced way of looking at things now. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, doing this job, being one of the hosts, it, that's the point. It, it makes you really think, doesn't it? And mm. it challenges your own assumptions of what you thought you knew. But, you know, um, brilliant, brilliant, Becky. Are you surprised you've had so much to say? Because we could go on for ages, but <laughs> I think you've enjoyed it more than you thought you would. I think I have. I think I have. And I, I thought that we would go into all of my um, my early career as a commercial lawyer. And actually, I'm really pleased that we didn't. Not that not that, that part of my career wasn't um, interesting and, and shaped who I am. But I think that you have you have amazingly you have teased out the things that really shaped who I am. And mm. and it's been it's been eye opening to me that that chunk in the middle, that that's not what it was at all. Well, I'm really pleased to enjoy it. I this is one of my favourites as well because I really oh. wanted to get behind, you know, who you are, Becky, not just as a lawyer, but what you're passionate about, and and you've articulated that really brilliantly. So thank you so much for being a wonderful guest on the hearing. It's weird even saying that to you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Yasmin. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.